Oh, hey there. Did you recognize the show with the new intro music? I'd like to say that this means I'm doing something new and fresh and bold and exciting, like a zesty salad dressing, but the reality is that this is still the same old People Are Wild podcast. I'm still the same old friendly neighborhood ER nurse, your host with the most, Kim. And on this recording, I'm a little bit under the weather, so I do apologize. Now, this is the last week of February, at least the front part is, so I'm going to round out our Heart Health Month by tying up some odds and ends regarding heart disease and risk factors for heart-associated conditions. Now, there's a lot to cover, so let's jump right into it. I've lit my James Vanderbeek prayer candle. I've listened to Elton John and RuPaul's duet of Don't Go Breaking My Heart, and I'm ready, if you're ready, to talk about how people are wild. Aunt Cynthia was a notorious and prolific email sender. She's probably the reason why that chain letter from the 90s when Al Gore bestowed the internet upon all of us is still circulating in 2018. It's a damn shame you didn't forward it to 10 friends because certainly your life would have been changed for the better. Aunt Cynthia likes to send you these types of emails. She's one of those family members that will send you pictures she took with her phone via an email instead of sending it through a text message like a civilized person living in society. She forwards you every single medical email because, well, you are the nurse in the family. In fact, everyone asks you medical questions, and you never really mind it. It's flattering, really. And Aunt Cynthia is always good for medical emails, and sometimes they unintentionally make you laugh. She sent you something last week about the flu really being a plague that the government engineered in order to thin out the population. And you had to laugh at that, because no, Aunt Cynthia, that's a bit off-center. Even Jesse Ventura would say that's a bit of a stretch. And that guy believes reptilians exist. You gotta look at their eyes, man. Look at their eyes on YouTube. But this morning, Aunt Cynthia sent you an email that somewhat concerned you regarding medical accuracy. The subject line was, Lady Matters of the Heart, complete with two exclamation points, and it was a novel of an email. It read, Women and Heart Attacks. It began, I've meant to send this to my women friends to warn them that it's true that women rarely have the same dramatic symptoms that men have when experiencing a heart attack. You know, the sudden stabbing pain in the chest, the cold sweat, grabbing the chest and dropping to the floor that we see in the movies. Having had a completely unexpected heart attack about 10.30 p.m. with no prior exertion, no prior emotional trauma that one would suspect might have brought it on, it was this past April of 2017, about one and a half hours after I had spent a pleasant two hours rehearsing with the Notables, the best acapella group in all of Southeast Texas, And I was sitting all comfy and warm on a cold evening with my purring cat in my lap, reading an interesting story my friend had sent me, actually thinking, this is the life. All cozy and warm in my soft, cushy, lazy boy with my feet propped up. A moment later, I felt that awful sensation of indigestion. You know, when you've been in a hurry and grabbed a bite of a sandwich and you washed it down with just a little bit of something... And that hurried bite seems to feel like you've swallowed a golf ball going down the esophagus in slow motion, and it's super uncomfortable. You realize you shouldn't have gulped it down so fast and probably needed to chew it more thoroughly, and this time, drink a glass of water to hasten its progress down to the stomach. Which doesn't do much good, 
as your esophagus and throat muscles are in spasm and it hurts to swallow. Okay, Aunt Cynthia, what the hell is this email? This email is just like dramatic and super extra, but okay, I'll keep reading it. This was my initial sensation. The only trouble was that I hadn't taken a bite of anything since about 5 p.m. After that had seemed to subside, the next sensation was like little squeezing motions that seemed to be racing up and down my spine. Hindsight, it was probably my aorta spasming. Good lord, Aunt Cynthia, what even is this email? What? Okay, alright, let's just keep going again. Racing up and down her spine, gaining speed as the spasms continued racing up and under my breastbone. This fascinating process continued on into my throat and branched out into my jaw. Now, I had stopped puzzling about what was happening. We all have read and or heard about pain in the jaw being one of the signals of a heart attack happening, haven't we? I said aloud to myself and the cat, Dear God, I think I'm having a heart attack. And I lowered the footrest, dumping the cat from my lap, started to take a step, and fell on the floor instead. I thought to myself, if this is a heart attack, I shouldn't be walking into the next room where the phone is or anywhere else. But, on the other hand, if I don't, nobody will know that I need help. And if I wait any longer, I may not be able to get up in a moment. I pulled myself up with the arms of the chair, walked slowly into the next room, and dialed the paramedics. I guess when one reaches them, your address automatically flashes on the screen, as the operator verified my address immediately and asked my symptoms. I told her I thought I was having a heart attack due to the pressure building under the breastbone and radiating into my jaw. I didn't feel hysterical or afraid, just stating the facts, ma'am. She said she was sending the paramedics over immediately, asked if the front door was near me, and if so, to unbolt the door and leave it unlocked then lie down on the floor where they could see me when they came in. No, I didn't take an aspirin, as I'm allergic to it. What? Okay, woman who wrote this email. Jesus, Aunt Cynthia, who are you friends with? But I did take a 100 milligram magnesium oxide capsule, a bottle of which I kept handy within reach on the kitchen counter, which is a small detour on my way to the front door. I took it with about three-fourths of a glass of water to get it dissolving ASAP into my bloodstream. Now, magnesium relaxes blood vessels as it dissolves to get them to expand to let blood get through the constriction of the vessels, and I was hoping that they would help in my case. I then laid down on the floor as instructed and lost consciousness as I don't remember the medics coming in or their examination or them lifting me onto a gurney or getting me into their ambulance or hearing the call that they made to St. Jude ER that they were on their way. But I did briefly awaken when we arrived and I saw the cardiologist was already there in his surgical blues and cap helping the medics pull my stretcher out of the ambulance. He was bending over me asking questions probably something like, have you taken your medications? But I couldn't make my mind interpret what he was saying or even form an answer. And I nodded off again. I woke up with the cardiologist and one of his partners already threading a teeny angiogram balloon up through my femoral artery in my leg into my aorta and thus into my heart where they installed two side-by-side stents to hold open my right coronary artery. I was then taken to the CCU and was greeted by three anxious faces of my family. Since I had been a patient at St. Jude in the past for a prior stroke that I had, they already had my emergency info in their system and had called my family. I spent two days in the cardiac care unit, two in the general ward. Then I was discharged. 
Now I know it sounds like all my thinking and actions at home must have taken at least 20 to 30 minutes before calling the paramedics. This email, Aunt Cynthia, feels like it's taking 20 to 30 minutes. But actually, it took perhaps four to five minutes before the call, and both the fire station and St. Jude are only minutes away from my house. My cardiologist was already at the hospital, ready to go in the OR with his scrubs on and get my heart pumping again, which apparently my heart had stopped somewhere between my arrival and the procedure. Why have I written all of this out to you in such detail? Yes, Aunt Cynthia, why all these details? Because I want all of you who are so important in my life to know what I learned firsthand. Now, as a certified medical back office assistant, is that real? Is it? I don't know. In internal medicine clinics, and as one who has lived through a heart attack, I wanted to share some of the things that I learned. One, being aware that something very different was happening in my body. It is said that many more women than men die of their first, and I guess last, heart attack because they didn't know that they were having one, and commonly mistake it as indigestion, maybe taking some Maalox or some other anti-heartburn medication before going to bed and hoping that they'll feel better in the morning when they wake up, which doesn't always happen. My female friends, your symptoms, they might not exactly be like mine. So we advise you to call the paramedics if anything is unpleasantly happening that you've not felt before. It is better to have a false alarm visit than to risk your life guessing what it may or may not be. Number two, note that I said, call the paramedics. Ladies, Time is of the essence. Do not try to drive yourself to the ER. You're a hazard to others on the road. And so is your panicking husband, friend, or whoever that will no doubt be speeding and looking anxiously at what's happening with you instead of the road. And it's a danger to your kids or friends. They will get the attention of a cop who will pull you over for speeding, wasting more time. So don't drive yourself. Also, don't call your doctor. He doesn't know where you live. And if it's at night, you won't reach him anyway. And if it's in the day, his assistance or answering service will tell you to just call the paramedics and call 911. He doesn't carry the equipment in his car that you will need to be saved. Paramedics do. Number three, don't assume it couldn't be a heart attack because you have normal cholesterol count. I did. And I had one. Research has discovered that a cholesterol elevated reading is rarely the cause of a heart attack unless it's unbelievably high and or accompanied by high blood pressure. Heart attacks are usually caused by long-term stress and inflammation in the body, which dumps all sorts of deadly hormones into your system to really sludge things up in there. And of course, genetics can be a factor. Now, a serious note about heart attacks. Women should know that not every heart attack symptom is going to be left arm hurting or severe chest pain. But be aware of intense pain in the jaw, or even pressure there, and under the breastbone, or those indigestion symptoms, especially if you haven't eaten in several hours. You may never have the first chest pain during the course of a heart attack, but heaviness and pressure under the breastbone is common. Nausea and intense sweating are also common symptoms, but not necessarily in women. 60% of people who have had heart attacks while they are asleep do not wake up. Now, pain in the jaw can wake you from a sound sleep, and let's be careful and be aware. The more we know, the better chance we will survive. A cardiologist has said that for every person who gets this email and who sends it to 10 people, they can be sure that they'll save at least one life. 
Okay, my goodness, Aunt Cynthia, this is a dissertation of an email. The whole entire Harry Potter series was shorter than this beast of an email. Now, although in general, the message contains some good information at points about what symptoms to watch out for and what to do if you're having a heart attack, it jumps the shark at a few points. So I'm sorry, Aunt Cynthia, but your email is making me very concernicus. Now of these points, the most important is the assumption that one kind of heart attack typically afflicts men and another one strikes down women. Heart attacks don't discriminate by gender. Men and women alike can and do experience both kinds of heart attacks. Yes, you have the one that is the sudden clutching of the chest and keeling over, and you have a heart attack that can manifest itself as a little bit of tightness or pain in the chest, accompanied by a whole slew of symptoms that could easily be mistaken for other ailments, or even by nonspecific symptoms, such as a general feeling of fatigue and weakness that might be overlooked. According to the homies over at the American Heart Association, they say, some heart attacks are sudden and intense. The movie heart attack, if you will, where no one doubts what's happening, but most heart attacks start slowly with mild pain or discomfort. Often, people affected aren't sure what's wrong and wait too long before getting help. Yet there is some truth to the notion of maybe a little bit of gender-based differences, but not in the way that you think. Women are more prone to experiencing symptoms beyond the obvious sudden onset chest pains like you see with men. The American Heart Association also notes that as with men, women's most common heart attack symptom is chest discomfort, but women are somewhat more likely than men to experience some of the other common symptoms, particularly shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting, and back or jaw pain. Women are also more likely to experience atypical heart attacks, that is, doesn't quite present as sudden shooting pains or a feeling of crushing weight in the chest area, followed by a sensation of pain radiating up the arm and into the neck, all accompanied by cold sweats. While 60% of female heart attack victims experience the more usual form of an attack, 40% feel little or no chest pains at all. Yet the atypical heart attack happens to men too, which is why people of both genders need to remain alert to the onset of more subtle symptoms such as back and jaw pain, nausea, and indigestion. Now the second bit of misinformation, present only in a longer form of the email, starts to go on into surviving, like survival tips for heart attacks. And it becomes this very long and involved email of not quite medically accurate advice. True, summoning paramedics rather than attempting to drive oneself to the hospital is a good piece of advice. There are some things in there that are a little bit more questionable. And in the longer form of that email, at least according to a Snopes article that I saw for this research for this episode... It talks about how a fourth item touches on drinking cold water can reduce your heart attack symptoms while you're waiting, and it's not really recommended. So in a nutshell, maybe it works, but more than likely, no, it doesn't. So Aunt Cynthia, you're about to get some truth bombs in the form of a response email because you love and care for your aunt, 
She is amazing. She let you watch that rated R movie when you were 10 years old, after all. And she is just one of the many people out there who is trying to remain informed about risk factors associated with heart disease and heart attacks. So let's delve into that a little bit deeper. February is not just Heart Health Month, but it's also known as Go Red for Women. And it's an effort put forth by the American Heart Association to increase awareness about heart disease in women, which is a leading cause of death. It outpaces cancer in terms of mortality rates. Yet how many people know that until they end up with a life-changing experience of having a heart attack or something associated with heart disease cast a catastrophic and sometimes devastating, if not deadly, effect in their life. The more risk factors you have, the greater your chance of developing a coronary heart disease. Coronary heart disease can lead to heart attacks, strokes, and life-altering events in a person and their family's lives. So let's talk about a few of these risk factors. Unfortunately, increasing age increases your risk. And the majority of people who die of a coronary heart disease-related incident are 6 to 5 years or older. And at older ages, women who have heart attacks are more likely than men to die from them within a few weeks. So you can't fight that your body is going to age, no matter what the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills do, especially regarding their under-eye bags, I guess. If you saw Big Brother, Brandy Glanville kept wearing these 24-karat gold under... I don't know. Her beauty routine was very involved, very long, and I'm pretty sure it took most of her day to do her beauty routine. But the fact of the matter is that Brandy Glanville is still going to age. I'm still going to age. You're still going to age. Our bodies are going to age. And while externally we might be able to do some lies in order to hide our age... Internally, we can't fight the fact that our organs are getting older as we get older, and a landslide will bring you down. No, maybe just a heart attack. Now, for men, they have a greater risk of heart attack than women do, and they have attacks earlier in life. After menopause, when women's death rates from heart disease increases, it still doesn't catch up to men's heart attack rate of actually getting them. Men just have a greater risk of heart disease but older women have a risk of dying from heart attacks sooner. Another thing we can't really fight would be heritage and a race. So children of parents with heart disease are more likely to develop in themselves. African Americans have more severe high blood pressure than Caucasians and a higher risk of heart disease. Heart disease risk is also higher among Mexican Americans, American Indians, Native Hawaiians, and even some Asian Americans. Now, this is partly due to higher rates of obesity and diabetes, which is something I do want to talk about on a show down the road. It's very prevalent. I know in America, we have a lot of epidemics going on. We have a flu epidemic. We have an obesity epidemic. We have an opioid epidemic. So there's a lot of things going on in the United States medically that definitely we need to talk about. And I will address obesity and diabetes later on down the road. But for the sake of this episode, keep in mind that higher rates of obesity and diabetes does predispose people to developing heart disease. Now, most people with a strong family history of heart disease have one or more other risk factors. And again, just as you can't control your age, gender, or your race, 
you can't control your family history. You are literally born into it. Therefore, it's even more important to treat and control any other risk factors that you might have. So we can get into now the things we can control and that we can choose to lower our risk of developing coronary heart disease. One of the big things that we always tell people in the ER is that when they come in, we ask them, do you drink or smoke? And if you say that you smoke, it perks up our ears and we automatically turn to you and say, how much do you smoke? How long have you been smoking? Because reducing your risk includes giving up cigarettes, giving up tobacco products. Smokers' risk of developing coronary heart disease is much higher than that of non-smokers. Cigarette smoking is a powerful independent risk factor for sudden cardiac death in patients with coronary heart disease. Cigarette smoking also acts with other risk factors to greatly increase the risk for coronary heart disease. And exposure to other people's smoke increases the risk of heart disease even for non-smokers. So I know a lot of people talk about how they only smoke outside or they smoke away from their families or they, for whatever reason, they only smoke on the way to work and they smoke on the way back and no one rides in their car. But the thing is, just don't smoke. Whatever you can do to kick the habit, it's going to benefit your body and yourself in the long run and your family. So giving up tobacco products and cigarette smoking, especially vaping, e-cigs, that is imperative for your overall health and it can be for your household's health. So another risk factor that you have some say into is high cholesterol. The higher your cholesterol is, the higher your risk of developing coronary heart disease. When other risk factors such as high blood pressure and being a smoker are also present, this risk increases exponentially. And a person's cholesterol level is also affected by age, gender, genetics, and their diet. And there's a lot that goes into cholesterol and it's stuff that you no doubt can look up, but they always say that your LDLs are the bad cholesterol. And so if you have an LDL level that's low, it's considered good for your heart health. But your LDL number should no longer be the main factor in guiding treatment to preventing heart attacks and stroke, according to the latest guidelines from the American Heart Association. And I will say this, the AHA, the American Heart Association, they're pretty badass about keeping guidelines and procedures and recommendations up to date. Just from a CPR aspect in terms of being a healthcare provider, the reason why you research so often every two years is because there's usually new evidence that's being brought into practice. There's new research that is being shown to do X, Y, and Z. So the American Heart Association is one of those associations that is constantly researching and constantly funding projects in order to figure out not just how to help Americans, but by their extension and what they find in their research can help out on a global level. The AHA has a lot of my respect, and as much as I hate doing recertifications, it's necessary and I'm better for it because I am, again, trained in what is most current and best practice for patient care. Now, high blood pressure is also a risk factor that we have some say into. High blood pressure will increase the heart's workload, and that causes the heart muscle to thicken and become stiffer. This stiffening of the heart muscles is not normal and causes the heart not to work properly. It also increases your risk of stroke, heart attack, kidney failure, and congestive heart failure. When high blood pressure exists with obesity, smoking, high cholesterol levels, or diabetes, the risk of heart attack or stroke increases again exponentially. Another risk factor we have say into is our lifestyles. 
An inactive lifestyle is a risk factor for coronary heart disease. So, regular, moderate to vigorous physical activity helps reduce the risk of heart and blood vessel disease. So, what qualifies as moderate to vigorous physical activity? Playing video games is not really a physical activity. But, if you do some of that connect, I guess, the Xbox thing that they used to have. Do they still make that? That was like a big thing when I was younger. I don't know why. But if you're doing things like walking every day, doing your 10,000 steps, it's kind of cool that we have a lot of things on our smartphones that are geared towards health. They take our pulses sometimes with our fingerprints. They can monitor our step counts. And a lot of businesses have gotten on board with trying to get their employees to be more active, even if you have a desk job. They have these challenges for people and they incentivize it because studies show if you provide people with incentives such as a t-shirt, tickets to a concert, whatever, it will cause people to want to at least strive towards doing these things a little bit more to taking on these challenges and to get serious about it more than just saying, hey, it's good for your heart. But if it instills good habits that can be carried over to a long-term thing, it's helping. And it's a good thing, like Martha Stewart would say. Even if you can't do vigorous physical activity, moderate intensity activities will help if they're done regularly and long term. So the women that I used to kind of make fun of who would always go and walk around the local lake on their lunch break, they were ballers and they were ahead of a lot of other people in terms of doing moderate activity on a long term basis. They always walked around the lake two times and that was at least two and a half miles on their lunch break they got outside they did some moderate activity and they're probably protecting their heart more than people who sit at their desk and eat their lunch so it's not a slight to anybody who isn't able to do certain things but it definitely is something we need to be aware of in terms of keeping ourselves physically active as much as we can even while doing certain jobs and certain tasks in our daily life. Physical activity can help control blood cholesterol, diabetes, and our weights, as well as helping lower blood pressure in some people. Now, on the subject of weight, people who have excessive body fat, especially if a lot of it is at the waist, are more likely to develop heart disease and stroke even if they have no other risk factors. How scary is that? Overweight and obese adults with risk factors for cardiovascular disease such as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, or high blood sugar can make lifestyle changes to lose weight and produce clinically meaningful reductions in triglycerides, blood glucose, their A1C, and the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. So again, if you've ever watched my 600-pound life, Dr. Now is amazing. But if you think about what he's saying, it's stuff that makes sense. The body just has to work harder in order to maintain a higher weight. So many people may have difficulty losing weight, and they do sometimes need interventions like a gastric bypass. But even in this case, sustained weight loss of 3 to 5% body weight has led to clinically meaningful reductions in some risk factors and larger weight losses like you see on my 600 pound life post bypass surgery will no doubt benefit those patients in terms of lowering their blood pressure and making their cholesterol go back to a normal level as well as helping to control their blood sugar issues because most of these people 
do have diabetes or at least some form of blood sugar issues. Now, on the subject of diabetes, that's called a good segue. Diabetes seriously increases your risk of developing cardiovascular disease. Even when glucose levels are under control, diabetes increases the risk of heart disease and stroke. But the risks are even greater if a blood sugar is not well controlled. At least 68% of people over the age of 65 with diabetes do die of some form of heart disease. And 16% of those people die of a stroke. So if you have diabetes, it's extremely important to work with your healthcare providers to manage it and control any other risk factors you can. Persons with diabetes who are obese or overweight should make lifestyle changes to help manage their blood sugar. Now, another thing we always have in our lives, but we can have some semblance of control over is stress. Individual responses to stress may be a contributing factor to coronary heart disease. Some scientists have noted that there exists a relationship between coronary heart disease risk and the stressors in a person's life, their health behaviors, and their socioeconomic status. Now, these factors may affect the established risk factors. For example, people under stress may overeat, start smoking, or even drink more alcohol than they otherwise would. So it's all related. On the subject of alcohol, drinking too much alcohol can raise blood pressure, increasing the risk of cardiomyopathy and stroke, cancer, and other diseases. It can contribute to high cholesterol levels and produces irregular heartbeats. Now, excessive alcohol consumption contributes to obesity, alcoholism, suicide, and accidents. However, there is, and it has been shown in research, there's a cardioprotective effect of moderate alcohol consumption. You remember those studies that say drinking red wine is good for your heart? There is something to be said for that. But if you drink, you need to limit your alcohol consumption to no more than two drinks per day for men and no more than one drink per day for women. Now, don't get into that mindset where you can just do your one drink as being a big gulp of wine because the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism defines one drink as one one half fluid ounces of 80 proof spirits such as a bourbon scotch vodka or gin don't mix those together that sounds awful or five fluid ounces of wine or 12 ounces of regular beer It's not recommended that non-drinkers start using alcohol or that drinkers increase the amount of alcohol they drink. It's, It's kind of like if you're already drinking, just keep this in mind. You know, if you're a social drinker, if you're a casual drinker, don't all of a sudden think that this gives you a pass to start drinking to excess because it's good for your heart. Overconsumption of anything is not good for anyone. So moderation is key. But it is interesting to note that alcohol does have some heart protective qualities. Now, the other thing we need to throw into the mix of our risk factors that we can control is diet and nutrition. A healthy diet is one of the best weapons you have to fight against heart disease. Now, the food you eat and the amount can affect other controllable risk factors such as cholesterol, blood pressure, diabetes, and weight. If you choose nutrient-rich foods, which have vitamins, minerals, fiber, and other nutrients, but are lowering calories over nutrient-poor foods, you're doing an okay job. You choose a diet that emphasizes intake of vegetables, fruits, and whole grains, 
includes low-fat dairy products, poultry, fish, legumes, such a great word, non-tropical vegetable oils, and nuts, and limits the intake of sweets, sugar-sweetened beverages, and red meats. That's going to be a good recipe to keeping your heart doing its thing and maintaining a healthy weight. Coordinate this with your diet and your physical activity and you have a lifestyle and diet change that is good for your heart. It's just that life happens and it could be tough to follow a diet of sorts, but that's a whole thing in and of itself. Diets aren't necessarily a one-time only thing if you're always eating this way. It's a lifestyle. It's not just something you're going to do for 90 days. It's something that you carry out for the rest of your life. So if you teach yourself or your children good eating habits, they're going to grow up with it. But to adjust habits that you have, it's hard. But it can happen and it is possible. So let's get into maybe a little bit more about prevention of heart attacks. Now, heart attack can occur at any age. You're never too old or too young to start heart-healthy living. If you're over 40 or if you have multiple risk factors, you need to work especially close with your doctor to address your risk of developing heart disease. Heart attack prevention should begin early in life. If you instill good habits early on in whatever you do or whatever you're doing for other people, including your children, that's going to cause prevention to develop. And prevention is critical because, again, many first ever heart attacks are fatal or at least disabling to a point where they ultimately will end a person's life. So this is a brief-ish, somewhat hodgepodge, all-over-the-place overview of risk factors that are associated with heart disease. Again, genetics can predispose anyone to a whole plethora of things, but I have yet to see genetics produce an X-Men. Now, much like the Beastie Boys proclaimed, you have got to fight for your right to try not to have a heart attack. That was on the B-side. So lifestyle choices and changes can lean you one way or the other regarding whether or not you do develop heart disease. And the reason why I made a conscious effort to devote February to the heart is because this is not just important to me from a nursing perspective. It's important to me from a personal aspect. Without getting too emotional, I hope, my own family members have passed away from heart attacks and they've been sudden, and they've been taken away by heart disease way too soon. It has devastated our family. And so if whatever I can personally do with this episode, with the previous episodes I did this month, to raise awareness about heart disease, it's so worth it. So let's conclude this episode. It was a little bit more serious than some of the other ones I've done, but it needed to be. But we're still going to end it the way I always end things we're going to play You Got What Stuck Where. It's the best show on this side of the podcasting realm, I guess. I don't know. So I will give you four clues. You tell me via a tweet over at People Are Wild your best guess for what got stuck where. And if you're most correct first, first most correct, you get some sweet stickers and amazing bragging rights in certain circles of friends. Clue one. This happened to a young man who was old enough to know better, but claimed he had no idea how this happened. Clue two, the original item that was stuck in there was soon joined by another item. So yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is a two-part answer because we have two foreign objects stuck in the body because this gentleman tried to get out the original foreign object 
with something quite pliable but failed to remove it and ended up creating a second foreign object getting stuck in him. Now clue three, doctors were forced to operate to remove the items in question and ended up finding that the objects had pierced his bowel in numerous places, which slides into clue four. This is because the two items in question were indeed stuck up this guy's keister. So there you have it, four clues. You guess both of the items because this is a two-parter by tweeting to me at People Are Wild, and I look forward to hearing your creative guesses. Going into March, I don't have an actual outright theme, but I do have some fun topics to talk about that I cannot wait to share with you. There's some special things going on in March that are going to be fun, and I do hope that you enjoy them. Now, I need to take the time again to thank all of you for listening to another episode, for sticking with me through February's Heart Health Month. I hope that we learned some things and that we can all create awareness about heart disease, not just in America, not just in the United States. And I know that a lot of the stuff that I do is focused on that because this just so happens to be where I do reside. But it does go across the board on a global level that this will help everyone. So I'm hoping that everyone learned a little bit more about just how amazing their heart is. And as they always say, the best way to a man's heart is through the stomach. But what I say is that the best way to a man's heart is through the fourth and fifth rib. So I sincerely hope that everyone has a great week ahead, that you make the world a better place by doing simple acts of kindness. And remember, think about taking a CPR class. Hey, it's me, Javier, and I'm back with Pretend Radio. I continue to explore the concept of people pretending to be someone else like Carl, who comes from a long line of con artists. My, my father told me at a young age, he says, Carl, the two easiest things to sell anybody, anything that'll improve their looks and anything that'll make them money. And that's what you want to sell. But guess who else I have on the show? The FBI agent who busted him. Oh yeah. I also started doing a little digging and found this whole community of parents who are making their kids drink bleach to cure them from their autism. She said that parasites are causing autism and the only way to get rid of autism is to kill the parasites with this solution. So parents are giving it to their children and they're having sores break out on their children's arms. They are having um, bowel lining come out of their children. Also, I talked to a millionaire whose life was destroyed by a con man, but then ended up becoming a con artist herself. Plus, I tell a story I don't like to talk about often. It's my personal encounter with a psychopath. Pretend Radio Season 2 is coming soon. Subscribe to Pretend Radio wherever you get your podcasts.